Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nakhtang Rinpoche, Chapter 12, Part 1. What's so funny, Vic? asked Graham. In answer, I held up the tie and announced with mock hauteur, Ich bin ein Berliner. Nein, Graham laughed. Du bist ein Hamburger. Chapter 12. The Buddhist and the Bluesman. September 1968. There was little time left before the new phase of my life was to begin at a different school. It was another interlude bardo, an intermediate phase between this and that, in which I was not defined. The definition would arise as new patterns coalesced. I'd returned triumphant from Germany and a short hiatus ensued in which I spent time with Steve and Ron. We had a few savage cabbage rehearsals. The rest of the time I devoted to hours of silent sitting. My father applauded my zest for woodland walking and, as he never walked in the woods, there was no chance of him ever discovering that I spent my time sitting in the branches of an old yew tree. I was sitting for an hour a day at that point, and periods of thought-free presence had begun to occur more frequently. I was far from stable in terms of silent sitting, but I had the sense that I had a direction and a destination. The sensation that a previous version of me had died and was dying all the time was increasingly present in terms of the sense of what it was that was moving through life. What it was that was moving through life could be abbreviated to me and what I was experiencing. The me and I, however, had become ideas which were becoming decreasingly reliable. I was aware that there was a perceptual locus that changed in a chameleoid manner according to where I happened to be and with whom. With Savage Cabbage, the locust looked and sensated like a bluesman with friends. We inhabited a world that made sense of itself. I did not feel moved to question that world, but then later I'd be at home and redefined as a son and brother. There'd be my father and mother and Graham, and then I'd be some other form of perceiving in which the bluesman was a memory. I was aware that I never really wished too much to be elsewhere and this provided some kind of smoothness to every transition. Then the Monday arrived at which I was to set out for Virginia Water School, some 12 miles away. My acceptance in the sixth year had been set in motion by Miss Sparshot, the headmistress of Farnham Girls Grammar School. I'd committed an act of mild insanity 
by applying to Farnham Girls Grammar School for a place in their sixth year. Why? Well, Netherfield School concluded with the fifth year and anyone wishing to go on for another two years to take A-levels had to apply either to Farnham Boys Grammar School or to one of the two technical colleges, Farnborough or Guildford. There was a problem, however. You needed five O-levels to be accepted at Farnham Boys Grammar School and four O-levels at each of the technical colleges. I had three O-levels, English Language, English Literature and Geography. I'd have had History too, but the teacher had left and was not replaced. The same was true of Drama, Art and Music, but those subjects ended in the third year. Finally, I should have had Religious Education O-Level but for the teacher having had an 86% failure record. No one passed the examination in my year. I was somewhat shocked because I'd been obtaining marks in excess of 70% on a regular basis. Still, I'd gained A grades in English language and English literature, so I thought my three O-levels were relatively worthy. And as Farnham Girls Grammar School only required three O-levels, I thought I might as well apply. I took the precaution of only giving my first initial with my surname and was duly called to an interview. After some consternation, Miss Sparshot's annoyance with my foolishness became good-humoured. She understood the situation vis-à-vis -vis the religious education teacher because she'd heard the same complaint from all the Netherfield girls who had taken the subject. She had also heard of the libidinous horror that had taken place of Mr Davis and Miss Elphinstone being caught in flagrante one lunchtime in the chemistry laboratory. They'd been dismissed in disgrace. The drama classes were not replaced by another English language subject and I failed to obtain the O-level in drama that I could easily have obtained. The upshot was that Miss Sparshot took pity on me. Although I was not accepted at Farnham Girls Grammar School, she wrote a letter to Mr Ironsides, the headmaster of Virginia Water Comprehensive School. And so it was that I attended an interview and was accepted for the sixth year there. Having eaten breakfast and filled my satchel with the required books, I'd read them all in the summer, I rode off in the direction of the Farnborough Road, which I took till it intersected with the London Road. I had directions and they were easy enough to follow. I arrived early and without problem, parked my motorcycle in the school car park and went to find my classroom. There was no one there. Observed on my own, I was told by a helpful teacher that the rest of the sixth years would be in the sixth form common room. I strolled over to a small building separate from the main school buildings and entered.
Hello, I began. I'm Vic. I'm joining the sixth year here. The person I addressed turned out to be Pete Bridgewater, and he turned out to be a good friend. Welcome to hell, Pete laughed. You made the deal with Legpa too, I asked. Legba? Pete inquired, and I told him about the crossroads. As we were talking, Greg Ford joined the conversation, and it was clear I'd hit the right note. Virginia Water School was Bluesville. Greg Ford was a rocker who looked every inch the rocker. He had a fine, suitably aged black leather jacket, black zip-up winkle picker boots and long dark hair. His repartee took no prisoners. Once it was understood that I was a member of the Savage Cabbage Blues Band, my credentials were established and everything else followed easily. I was introduced to the other blues aficionados and the school day began. I never knew quite what to make of two things in life, the scene and who I was in the scene. Clearly being in the scene was better than being out of the scene, as I'd been at Netherfield. But both had to be regarded as illusion if one were a serious Buddhist. I was trying hard to be a serious Buddhist. I was also trying hard as a serious bluesman. I had no doubt that I was a bluesman, but was not quite as confident that I could be a real Buddhist. If I was a serious Buddhist, would I not drop everything and hightail it to the Himalayas? Yes, but with what money? I could quit school and work on building sites, but then I'd have to abandon Savage Cabbage. I had a debt of loyalty to Steve and to Ron, and it was not a debt that I resented. I was a mixed bag of identities, and there was no separating them. The nature of reality, whatever it was, was in the habit of changing. This was the latest in a series of cameos, and whatever I might be, was walking around in it smiling and being greeted with approval. I smiled back in return. I knew I could never explain such thoughts to anyone around me, other than Steve, and he had his limits when it came to discussing emptiness. The idea that reality was not this, not that, not this and that, and not neither this nor that, He'd just say, isn't it just there as it is? And I'd reply, yes, exactly. And that's what Dharma means, as it is. And that would end the conversation with a gale of laughter. One of the first things I learned was that there was a heavyweight party scene in the area and that parties were regularly tracked down as far away as Camberley. Frimley, Woking, Bracknell, Slough and Farnborough. The whole area around Virginia Water was a warren of suburban residential streets and so there were always parties. At that time there seemed to be a culture which allowed people to show up at anyone's party 
as long as they had bottles of wine under their arms. And although I wasn't a ferocious party animal, I hit the party scene as part of the Virginia water induction process. Lucky for me that I plunged in, because that is how I came to meet one of the loves of my life, Lindy Dale. They said of John the Baptist in the Gospel of St Matthew that he was Elijah come again. When I met Lindy, it was as if she was both Alice and Annalee come again. It was love at first sight for both of us, and from that point it grew exponentially. We had everything imaginable in common, apart from academic prowess and the ability to learn foreign languages. Lindy was a thoroughgoing, culturally encyclopedic, massively well-read polymath. She was also the most beautiful being I had ever beheld. She had brilliant ginger hair and blue-green eyes that were like searchlights. She seemed to sparkle with life from head to foot. Her smile made me dizzy. I'd suddenly become the happiest creature on the planet. I was definitely not a monastic type. That seemed to settle the issue in relation to quitting school and heading for the Himalayas. But it threw me into a bedazzlement of conflicting notions in which I lost track of personal identity. I seemed to be whatever happened or whatever was unfolding. It was not unpleasant but it had certain resonances with what I'd heard about acid trips. It was as if I was hallucinating life and the only solid ground I had was silent sitting, a state in which there was no ground. Virginia Water School was pleasant enough but suddenly it became an immense pleasure. I was fortunate in having only a few subjects. I only needed five O-levels and two A-levels for art school, and so I was not hard pressed. I didn't need wonderful grades in the O-levels, so they were no great problem. Sociology and history were interesting and gave me somewhat more of a political sense than I'd had before. Art was brilliant and I had some fine teachers. Mr Haviland, the English teacher, however, was a disappointment. Although he was as old-fashioned as Mr Priest, he entirely lacked his spark or literary authority. Mr Haviland was pedantic, a stickler for petty rules. He took objection to my lack of school uniform even though the headmaster had told me that wearing my Uncle Charles's dark grey woollen three-piece herringbone suit would be fine, as long as it bore the school badge. It bore the school badge, so what was the problem? Mr Ironsides, the headmaster, considered it to be an unnecessary expense to purchase a uniform for two years. He thought the suit rather smart, to his mind, smartness was the issue rather than the exact rule. Mr Haviland complained. 
and was overruled. But that caused him to treat me with a certain severity. Still, my work was always handed in on time and my marks were always in the 70s and 80s, so he had no grounds for having me flogged or keel-hauled. Not that anyone was flogged or even whacked with a plimsoll in that school, but I could see there was a certain look in his eye that bespoke a desire for retribution. Fortunately, he was fundamentally an honourable man, and so apart from viewing my appearance with continued displeasure, he did nothing to penalise me for it. I'd inherited a substantial wardrobe from my Uncle Charles, subsequent to his sad demise. He'd had cancer of the throat and had died in his fifties. He was a cavalry officer and a rather snappy dresser. I therefore inherited a white three-piece suit, velvet smoking jacket and all manner of Edwardian clothes. The smoking jacket had a satin collar and wonderful frog enclosures. Jack always said I should wear it on stage, but that wasn't my image as a bluesman. It might work for Jimi Hendrix, but I felt that a honky bluesman should be understood, understated. Apologies. Black American blues performers could put on the Ritz with outrageous ostentation and look just the part. Honkies, however, just looked ridiculous when attempting it. My idea of bluesman appearance was Levi 501s, collarless shirt and D-mob suit waistcoat. It was a working man's look. Blues was a working class metier. And so that's exactly what I wore the first time we played the Queen's Oak. Steve and Ron followed suit, but Jack came on as he always did, looking every inch the burlesque vaudeville cabaret showman in silk floral shirt and velvet loon pants. There'd been quite a rumble of interest about my being in a blues band at school. And so when the weekend arrived, a lot of people showed up to see what Savage Cabbage would be like. As Steve, Ron, Jack and I mounted the stage, there were hoots and whoops and we all felt we were starting on the right note. The audience had taken in the Marshall amplifiers and Ludwig traps and now they took in the guitars. Ron on Fender Telecaster, Steve on Fender Precision Bass and Six-String Hagstrom Bass and me on Gibson EB3. The Gibson EB3 belonged to Ron but he'd let me borrow it for gigs. He'd let Steve talk him into the idea that backup bass was a creative vector that would make us different from every other band. All I had to do was play the simplest riffs and leave Steve free to roam the fretboard in an extravagant manner. Steve tuned high and I tuned low. He played loud and I played a little less loud so that errors would not be too horribly obvious. I was playing backing bass and learning to play bass while singing. That wasn't always easy 
especially with born under a bad sign. And so Steve always took over the bass line when I was singing. My time came in the improvisational instrumental sections when Steve took off into flights of rhapsodic bass virtuosity, leading me to provide a simple pulp.